Good morning. So good to be with you. I've been asked to uh, explore a particular passage in 2 Corinthians, which of course is one of Paul's letters. And if you read Paul's letters, you get the sense that they kind of have a look and a feel to them, right? There's sort of a pattern. And, and what I'd like to do is to walk you through the general outline of every letter of Paul, which begins with grace, and then moves to, I thank God for you, and then uh, suggests that we should hold fast to the gospel, followed by the admonition that for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. <laughs> and oh, by the way, Timothy says hi. Christine actually saw that on the internet and shared that with me, and I thought I would share it with you. Oh, the things we do. Well, what I'd like to begin with is sort of an outline of where I intend to go, God willing, this morning, and that is a look at 2 Corinthians, right? That, that book of the Bible. And not just 2 Corinthians, but particularly within that chapter 5. And not just chapter 5, but specifically within chapter 5, verse 18. And not just verse 18, but a specific little phrase within verse 18 that is this. All this is from God. So, you know, that sort of raises an interesting question, perhaps. What does Paul mean when he says, all this is from God? And maybe a question we should ask even before that is, well, who's Paul? For some of us, that, that may be someone that we're not terribly familiar with. And what I would suggest to you is, if we want answers to these questions, we really need to pay attention to the context, what's going on around that phrase. We really need to put on our, our uh, Sherlock Holmes caps and, and become investigators, looking for clues and evidence, becoming, if I can say it, Bible detectives, which is kind of a, a fun thing to do, in fact. So what I'd like to do is to begin looking for clues in first, I'm sorry, in Second Corinthians, and I and I think that initially we we can identify three major kinds of context clues. I think they they really sort of uh, build on the idea that uh, first, what we're reading would seem to have the form of a letter. Secondly, uh, it comes in two major divisions. The letter does. It's it's put together in that way. And thirdly, there's a particular structure, a, a, an organizing framework to 2 Corinthians that will help give us some insight as to what, what Paul might mean when he says, all this is from God. So what I'd like to do is to sort of take each one of these context clues, the fact that it comes in the form of a letter, that it's structured according to, to two major divisions, and that there's a relationship between those two major divisions. I'd like to take each of those clues in turn, beginning with the fact that it takes the form of a letter. 
So how do we know? What is it about this that makes us think, think it's a letter? Well, first of all, it identifies the writer, right? The author, we know the author is Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus, right? Someone who spread the good news about Jesus. And he planted churches, started lots of churches uh, in the years immediately following the life of Jesus. And he did so mostly around the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he did most of his work. And the, the, the people that he's writing to are mentioned in this letter. These are the Corinthians, right? The recipients of this letter who apparently were struggling with some issues. The Corinthians are the people who live in Corinth, right? So that's, that's what that word means. And then we look beyond the author and the recipient, we see marks of a letter. We see an opening greeting, we see uh, exchanges, uh, senses of familiarity and relationship, and then we see a closing and a farewell, just like we would do letters today, right? But I'm going to suggest this to you, that I find 2 Corinthians a little bit tough. Can I get a witness? If you find 2 Corinthians a little bit tough to understand, go ahead and raise your hand. It's okay. We are, we, are, we, are, we are still the people of God. What is it that makes it difficult? Well, I'm saying it's difficult for me. The apostle Peter said it was difficult for him. We heard that earlier, didn't we? In 2 Peter 3.16, he says, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. Now, why is that? What, what is it about Paul's letter writing that makes it hard? Well, number one, it's, 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 we'll talk about these difficulties here. Well, first and foremost is, is the nature of letter writing itself. Now, why would letters be difficult? Well, because they assume a lot. If I'm writing a letter to Bonnie, then we, there are certain things that we assume. I don't have to introduce myself to her. She doesn't have to introduce myself to me. We have history. There's a lot that's already assumed there, isn't there? So, if you let me put it to you a little differently. If I pulled out my phone and opened my text messaging app and pulled up the thread of messages that I've historically had with my brother Rob, you would find them hard to understand because he and I have history. There's a lot of stuff that's already assumed that we don't have to unpack, right? So here, here's what I want to share with you. If, you. if you looked carefully as a Bible detective, as a text message detective, at my messaging with my brother, you'd see that he calls me Chuck. Well, why? Why? What's up with that? You would see that we, we end lots of our conversations with a number, 42. Well, what, why, what does that mean? Why are you doing that? And also that we, he particularly uses a word you've never heard of. It's pray it. Say that with me. Pray shat it. And you might say, well, what is that word? What does that mean? Well, not knowing these things makes reading my letters between me and my brother difficult for you. But it makes perfect sense to me, right? So if you want to know what these things mean, I'll tell you afterwards. 
won't take time today. So Paul was a big letter writer. Well, not a big letter writer. He was a little guy. But he wrote a lot of letters. In fact, there are 13 of his letters in our Bibles, right? And in fact, there are two letters to the Corinthians. Now, let's look at a context clue, a specific one. We're reading 2 Corinthians. Gentlemen, right down here in the front. I'm going to go to you guys. We're reading 2 Corinthians. What would lead you to believe that Paul wrote two letters? <laughs> That's exactly right. Right? So we know that there were probably some more letters. And in fact, we have access to at least one of those uh, to the Corinthians. And in fact, if we're doing good investigative work as Bible detectives, we'll see that there is a history of letter writing between Paul and this church at Corinth. Corinth, excuse me. <clears throat> he wrote to them, and they were writing to him. Also, we know in, in reading carefully that Paul had been to that church. Now, I visited Irving Church. I think this is my fourth visit. We read in 2 Corinthians that Paul had visited there twice already and was making plans to buy an airline ticket on American for his third visit to the Corinthians, right? So as we read this correspondence between him and the church, there's a lot of water that's already gone under the bridge, amen? And so that makes it tough. Let's go easy on ourselves. Secondly, we know that Paul is writing within a different cultural context, right? It was the ancient world, different time, different place, different language. So we've got to navigate that as best we can. And thirdly, we're going to be introduced to some new and potentially difficult concepts, ideas, terms that we're not familiar with, right? So let me, let me say this to you. Letter reading can be a difficult job. It's not impossible to get a sense of what's going on and to understand it. So what I want to suggest to us is let's not aim for a perfect understanding of 2 Corinthians and what Paul means by all this is from God. Let's aim for a better understanding. Are you okay with that? Let's just move the needle on this a little bit. See if we can gain some, some traction. So that's kind of an exploration of the first major con contextual clue that we're, we're reading a letter. Secondly, let's talk about the divisions, not the divisions of people within the church, but the divisions, the literary divisions of 2 Corinthians. Now, I know many of you have been working through 2 Corinthians this fall, right, in your grow groups, and one of the tasks you may have taken on was to identify the divisions of the book you know, two divisions, three divisions, whatever. And it can be a little tricky with Paul because he's writing pretty fluidly, right? Not clear breaks. But generally, I think what we can observe is that there are two major divisions to the, to the letter. The first division would be the first five chapters, and the second would be the remaining uh, seven, uh, eight chapters, chapters 6 through, through 13. So in the first division, Paul is teaching. Paul is imparting knowledge. Paul is talking about the reality of what is 
in terms of God and people and the relationship between the two. We, we might call this, call this the, the indicative. This is a, a grammatical term, right? A statement of what is. So what Paul is teaching us in part is, number one, his role as an ambassador for Jesus. <clears throat> Why is it that he gets to say something about the nature and purposes of God, right? So he's going to spill some ink on that. And then secondly, he really wants the people to understand the nature of this thing called the new covenant. So he's going to really invest some ink in these first five chapters, explaining what that is, okay? Now, we move on to the second major division of chapters 6 to 13, and there's a, there's a bit of a shift. Now, these aren't precise distinctions in the divisions, right? These are general observations. But generally, I think we can observe that this has more to do with action than knowledge. Doing more than knowing, right? And as such, we, we, we're not asking the question, well, what is true as much as we see a question being asked about how ought we to act if this is true? You know, uh, this, is, this is the so what section of 2 Corinthians, right? Specifically, how should the Corinthians live their lives in light of this thing called the new covenant? And we might call this section the imperative, the command, right? Again, another grammatical term. So contextually, I see that 2 Corinthians sort of falls into this kind of a general shape. Now, I can move on and I can ask a question about the structure of this book, specifically the relationship between these two divisions, right? And what I observe here, at least at this point in my reading of it, is that there seems to be this movement from cause to effect. Division one is the cause, the why, or the what, and division two is the so what, the therefore. In fact, I would say we move from a because of division one, therefore we live life in light of division two. Does that make sense? Francis Schaeffer, a famous apologist from the 20th century, century uh, wrote uh, just a classic work called How Shall We Then Live? Right? Asking this exact kind of a question. How shall we live in light of this thing called the new covenant? You know, I'm a big proponent of inductive Bible study, and in inductive Bible reading, we would call this relationship between these two divisions causation. The first division causes the second division. Now, that's really a, a, a quick tour of 2 Corinthians to give us some traction at a book-level survey, right? Now, with that in mind, what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin to focus on the first division. Now, we're not going to get through all of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, 
but we're going to get partway part way there. Now, for those of you who were with uh, Irving Church on Thursday evening, I joined by Facebook. Uh, it's Facebook, right? Yeah. I joined by Facebook and, and, and heard Stephen's message um, where he really looked at chapter 1 and, 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 and came away with this idea that because God keeps His promises as confirmed by fulfilled prophecies and miracles, we can trust God, that God is reliable and trustworthy. But trusting can be hard. Amen? How, how many of you have a fear of flying? Anybody have a fear? Yeah, absolutely. I still get anxious, but, but I, I trust that it'll work, right? So in the same way, it can be hard to trust God, even though we know in our minds He's faithful. So Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, my promises are reliable. You can take, take what I say to the bank, even if it's hard. He says in verse 17 of chapter 1, do I make my plans according to the flesh? That's an important phrase for Paul. Ready to say both yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Of course, he doesn't do that. Steve, in his uh, time of sharing, let us know about his first marriage. I, I didn't know that he'd been married before. And he was talking about how painful it was to experience a marriage in which his wife was unfaithful to him, and he struggled forgiving her and his friend with whom his wife was, was spending time. He needed to forgive his first wife, but it was really, really tough. He knew that God wanted him to. He knew that God was able to help him with that, but it was still hard. Do you remember that talk from Thursday night? That's the first thing we need to know as we begin sort of zeroing in on this phrase, um, all this is from God, right? And then on Friday night, Michael Fox stood before us and talked about this idea coming from the first half of the second chapter, that because love is our real strength when circumstances are at their worst, love is the key to forgiveness. And forgiveness is another word for reconciliation. To reconcile means to bring back together. If you reconcile your checkbook, I've noticed with the advent of online banking, I don't do that as much anymore. But I remember the days when I would sit down once a month and reconcile my checkbook to make sure that the checks I had written and the deposits I had made recorded in my checkbook were the same that are recorded at the bank. I needed to make sure these were brought together. Reconciliation is bringing something together. When I forgive someone, <clears throat> it's not just that I say, well, it's okay, or I go into this passive-aggressive mode, well, you know what, what you did, you know, whatever. It means I'm willing to live life restored to you. We're going to make this right. And Michael said Friday night that the key to this, the, the means of this, is love. And then uh, later, after Michael finished speaking on Friday night, Dennis Webb came 
and he shared from the second half of chapter 2 this thought, because the love of Jesus goes triumphantly ahead of us as a fragrant aroma, it has the power to change our circumstances, to make the old new, to recreate the climate of our existence. That's what the fragrant aroma of Christ can do. It can change the landscape and predispose the space we inhabit for the power of God to work a miracle. So grateful to Dennis for that message. And then Saturday, Darren Smith was here. What a great word that was. It's got to be really fun to have him in your family, Olivia. Um, He said this from chapter 3, because the new covenant establishes our relationship with God, we now have access to a transforming power to live into that relationship. God has entered our broken world of affliction and death and met us in it, proving His power, proving His power over it because He is risen from the dead. What a great word from Darren. And then later that later last night, Mike Kellett was here uh, from uh, White Harper's Road Church in Louisiana, and he said this, because God was able to speak light into existence from nothing. And that's no small feat, folks. Because by the word of his mouth, he could speak light into existence from nothing. He can shine his light through these cracks of our broken clay vessels. That's good news. Amen? If he can do that, he can do this. That's a piece of cake. He could do it with one arm tied behind his back. So that's a recap of where we've been. Not complete, but in summary. It gives you some sense of where we are moving into chapter 5, which uh, I, I've been asked to speak on. And of course, the question that we began with was, what does Paul mean when he says, all this is from God. What does he mean? I'm just going to give it to you again. We've already heard it. But beginning at verse 16 of chapter 5, from now on, therefore, look at that word. Now what's happening is Paul is transitioning. He spent the first five chapters telling us what we need to know. Now he's going to start telling us how we ought to act in light of that. So notice this transition. From now on, therefore, we regard no one, how? According to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God 
All of it. This is his economy. This is his organizational structure. This is his intent. This is the logos behind creation. This was the plan from the beginning. To offer a rescue strategy to get people out of hell on earth. Let's just keep going here. I don't want to stop reading Scripture. Where was I? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying not only are we now reconciled to Christ, not only are we set right with Christ, but now we have a special invitation to do the same work that Christ did in reconciling with us. Now we can reconcile with others and help reconcile them to Jesus. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. That sounds like a good gig. Are you interested? You want to go? Pack a lunch. It's going to be fabulous, right? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you, we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God for our sake. Now get this. Now this is where the fireworks start to go off for the grand finale, right? This is what I'm calling his thesis statement, the main If you're on a little personal vacation right now, come on back right? You don't want to miss this. For our sake, for us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made the sinless to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow! That's mind-numbing. So, I wanted to do some sort of a slide, you know, with a, with a chart or a structure. It just, it just didn't come to me. So I'm going I'm to try to draw it out for you with my hands. God, from time eternal, perfect, good, great, full of glory, creates the perfect world and perfect people to inhabit the world, to, to commune with Him, to relate to Him, to delight in Him, to be loved by Him. Yet those people chose to be stupid. For the love of everything that is holy, stop being stupid. They thought, well, you know, we know better than God. We'll just, we'll just do our own thing. And that created a separation between God and His perfect people, right? So much so that the brightness, the goodness, the glory of God was too bright for them. God covered them. He protected their vulnerability, their exposure, their nakedness. He protected them from the overpowering glory that is God. And they lived just a miserable existence, right, throughout the entire Old Testament until God said, you know, I, I, I think I've had about enough of this. 
Don't make me come down there. Well, I'm involved now. And God, as his son, came into this world. He who knew no sin became broken. A broken vessel. Human. Afflicted. Here's a sidebar and something for nothing. Take a crayon. Take two crayons because they don't bleed through pages. And in your Bible, if you're comfortable marking up your Bible, with one color, mark every instance of the word affliction or suffering in 2 Corinthians. And with another colored crayon, mark every instance of the word comfort. It, It will send you over the moon to see that. The Lord, God Almighty, the Holy One, who is worthy, left the throne to to enter our brokenness. He left His comfort to participate in our affliction. And when He did, He came to reconcile Himself. He came to get us. He came to bring us back to Him. Zacchaeus, you come down. I can't get to you up there. I can't reach you. I want you with me, and I want to be with you. Where am I going? I'm going to go to your house today. For I'm coming to your house today, right? And boom, Zacchaeus became tall. I mean, he became generous. And he invited people like Zacchaeus to go and do likewise. Now you go out. You are the chosen You go out and bring them to me and bring me to them. And in so doing, now now get this. Here's where the trick comes. That God who knew comfort and entered the world in affliction and reconciled himself to us then made it possible for us to leave our affliction and return to comfort. And that's the gospel. Josh, what was it that you told us the other night and you tried to credit it to somebody? I think it was Luke. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, all things are possible. Anything can happen. If he can do that, brothers and sisters, there's no stopping us. So let's take this. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, what can we do? What can we do? What can't we do? This is January 1st, the day of resolutions, right? This is the day we make these commitments and pledge to do better, be better. We resolve to act. We set our goals. I'm I'm going to say something a little bit troubling, perhaps. I wouldn't resolve to fast, necessarily. I wouldn't resolve to give more. I wouldn't resolve to worship more. I wouldn't resolve to pray more. I wouldn't resolve to evangelize more. I wouldn't resolve to do more missional work. More, more, more. Until... I had firmly resolved to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. To be completely 
vulnerable to him. Not that we, as naked people, would be clothed, but that we would be further clothed, clothed in his glory. I read Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, every day. And he, 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 he busts my chops on a regular basis. But the one thing I really take away from him is this. If, uh, of all that you do, and he says to preachers, you preachers, if you don't preach a risen Christ, what are you doing? Seek first him. Not for what he has to offer, but for who he is. Do you want the gift or do you want the giver? Now, I'm over on my time, but I'm going to give you this one. Uh, This is is the ad lib part here. God forgive me. I think it's Mark chapter 10 when Jesus comes to the blind man who's crying out, Son of David, have mercy, mercy on me, right? And Jesus goes up to him, and Jesus asks a question that Jesus already knows the answer to. Jesus does that a lot. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Really? Are you kidding me? Is that all you got? Why would Jesus ask a question that was so insanely obvious? Well, I want to see. And I can just hear the wheels going in in Jesus' mind. Oh, I love you, blind Bartimaeus. I love you so much. But is that all you got? Is that all you got? I'm the Son of God. And I'm standing right in front of you asking you what you want. Would you like to have me? Before we resolve to fast and pray and do mission work and evangelize and this and this, and these things must happen. Let me, let me clarify. Before we do any of that, let's seek Him. And if that's the aim, I think fasting and praying and giving will be transformed by the power of the one who can save. All this is from God. Amen? Amen. Feliz Año Nuevo.